Okay, so if you went to a rugby match, uh, and I think you would be shocked to see your team marching out onto the field and one of the members carrying a cricket bat. Seems out of place. That player would obviously not fit in this group of people. You know that rugby players are supposed to be prepared to play rugby, not be prepared for cricket. And the fact that this player carries a cricket bat shows that he is acting out of accord with what his team is supposed to be like. He's out of step, not only with the expectations, but even with what this community is actually supposed to be. And the point of that is that we, as Christians, should be just as shocked as we look at the church and if we were to find someone who is not characterized by repentance. We, we began a series with a quote from Martin Luther, the first of his 95 theses that sparked the Protestant Reformation. He wrote, when the Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. And his point was that repentance is a permanent, essential, and prominent aspect of what it means to live the Christian life. And so throughout these studies, we have looked at various aspects of what repentance is, that doctrine, and what it means for us to be a penitent people. The Westminster Shorter Catechism 87 tells us that repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. And so we, we see that repentance is turning away from sin and striving for obedience. Repentance is both. Both are crucial and both take serious consideration of our own hearts. And today I want to highlight from Luke 3 that the scripture enjoins upon God's people that repentance characterizes our numbers. Just like a rugby player with the cricket bat would be immensely out of place on the rugby pitch, the Christian without repentance is out of place in the church or at least they should be. So the main point from Luke 3, 1 to 9, is that God's covenant community is directed to overt and explicit repentance. God's covenant community is directed to overt and explicit repentance. We're going to consider this in three points. Obvious repentance, our repentance, and ongoing repentance. So first, let's think about obvious Repentance. And as we turn to look at the verses of our text, we see that they are about the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. So verses 1 to 2 simply situate these events in relation to precise historical reference point. Uh, but that's less important for our purpose today. Not that they're not important. They are 
God's Word, but for our purposes, verse 3 raises some, some very relevant material as we think about repentance. And he, John the Baptist, went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So, okay, John had a, a special, interesting role in biblical history. Technically, John was the final Old Covenant prophet. So, so even though he was the first prophet in the New Testament, he culminated the Old Covenant prophets, namely, by pointing directly to the coming Messiah. And so verses 4 to 5 applied Isaiah 40, 3 to 5, to John's ministry. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So Isaiah foretold one who ministered in the wilderness as the messenger who paved the way for God's own coming. This person's work directly prepared, so John's work directly prepared the people for Christ's coming by reinvigorating the message that sinners need to repent and be rescued from the consequences, both penalty and power, the consequences of their sin. He cleared the, John cleared the way for Christ by reminding them of how sinful they were and how they needed a savior. We see it in verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came to be baptized by him, you brood of viper, strong language. Not sure I could get away with saying that to you. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? They needed to hear that they were wicked and that God's wrath falls upon wicked people. And as we want to think more directly, more specifically about repentance, the key phrases for us are in verse 3, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Now, it's important. I think this is super cool. I I love this stuff. Um, And I think it's super important. But it's often overlooked or just assumed differently that John's baptism is not, strictly speaking, Christian baptism like ours is. So Christ, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, personally instituted the Christian sense. But he did not commission baptism as to seal the covenant of grace until after his resurrection, which as you know, or should, that comes much later in the Gospels than where we find this account. Now, the record of Paul's initial ministry in Ephesus, I, I know that that might raise some eyebrows, so I want to point you to some evidence. The record of Paul's initial ministry in Ephesus confirms the point I'm trying to make. So, Acts 19, verses 3 to 5, let me read these to you. And he, Paul, said, 
Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, listen, here's the crew, on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So the people who had been baptized according to John's baptism, and now they had to receive baptism in the name of Christ, as Jesus detailed for us in Matthew 28, 19. The need to receive baptism with the formula of the name of the triune God. So, what this means then is when when someone tries to explain baptism as, as a profession of repentance, it's incorrect to appeal directly in that way to John's ministry because John's baptism as an as an expression of repentance was not strictly speaking Christian baptism. And now here's the obviously that's going to remove an important part of Baptist arguments that only people who are old enough to make a profession can be baptized. But new to just so you know that I'm not sort of taking my Presbyterianism and sticking it into the, the scripture. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach, who, who believes in believers only baptism, explained that John's baptism was not an initiation rite into the covenant community, like our baptism, but is actually directed towards those, and this is where this becomes really important, directed towards those who are already part of the covenant. And so this baptism for them, therefore, is a reaffirmation of commitment to God and a public declaration within those who are God's people of their ongoing need to repent. So John's baptism was a a ritual that demanded God's people consider their sin. And this shows that just because the people of Israel were externally, in some ways, members of the covenant community, they they still had to have proper response to God. They could not depend on the fact that they are within God's people in an official manner. As verse 8 tells us, do not begin to say to yourselves... We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So, Okay, so to draw this together, this passage is about a baptism that summoned God's people who live within the covenant community to outright, ongoing, explicit repentance. That's what was happening here. And John's baptism summoned believers to make their repentance explicit and obvious. Obvious repentance is that God's people were called to show their repentance. And they did. That brings us to our second point. Our repentance. So the 
previous point established that John's baptism was not exactly the same as our baptism. And while our baptism seals God's promises in the covenant of grace, John's baptism was a conscious exercise in professing repentance within God's community. John, since he he went into all the region around the Jordan, spoke to those who were already initiated into God's covenant. And his hearers were then circumcised members of, of Israel. They and their children had received Old Testament baptism into God's Old Testament church, but they still had to repent. And John's call to God's people has a a really direct link to application for our lives. Most of you here are baptized members in Christ's church. You and your children have rightly been incorporated as members into what we call the uh, covenant's external administration. So, So... In baptism, God inserts you into his covenant. You participate in this community in a real way. Still, even though we are part of the church, we have to become truly, properly oriented to God. We must place our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. We cannot depend on church membership, but on Christ's merits alone for our standing with God. So this this observation raises again the series theme of being a a penitent people. How, How does this point us towards repentance? Well, it tells us that repentance is is an ongoing and continual need. Proper Christian, proper Christian baptism happens and initiates us into the church. The act of repentance, however, needs to happen repeatedly, always, throughout the Christian life. And the question is whether we, in this congregation, the people gathered here, whether we tend to rest in our presence in the church for security before God, or are we genuinely searching ourselves to turn away from our sin? It's unlikely that many people here do the the former explicitly or even consciously. I would be shocked to hear someone say uh, something like, it's perfectly fine for me just to go through the motions of, of the church, Uh, without throwing my heart into a relationship with God. I would be astounded if one of you said that to me so pointedly. Um, It is possible, though, that we unconsciously sink into that mindset. There's a line of reasoning, conscious or unconscious, that goes something like, look, I'm, I'm in the church every Sunday. I'm in a house group Bible study. I help with practical aspects of loads of things in the church more more than other people. I come to Thursday prayer. I'm in evangelistic prayer, interceding 
for the lost. And, and if I'm doing all that, how could I possibly be trapped in sin and need to search out for deep repentance? It couldn't be. Yes, it could. And the simple point is that we always need to be searching ourselves for repentance, to, to be repenting. As John announced, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And as that same commentator highlighted how the plural, fruits, fruits in keeping with repentance points beyond a, a one-time act towards an ongoing repetitive action. The point is, we have to be searching ourselves in hopes of becoming more godly. Our repentance must be real and an essential part of our life in the church. That brings us to our last point, ongoing repentance. So we saw this text summons believers in the covenant community to obvious repentance, and we examined some ways that we need to watch ourselves to make sure we are laboring in repentance. Now, now we need to turn to consider the value in these efforts that we make to maintain repentance. So first, we need to be aware have to keep in mind that sanctification, our our growth in godliness, is good in itself. People who, who cherish Christ long or should long to be like him. And it is inherently good, intrinsically good to be like Christ. You actually don't have to have a higher goal result from sanctification than being more in the image of God's Son. That is good enough to be like Jesus. Those called by Christ's name and baptized into his body should hunger and thirst for righteousness because good. And remember also, second, repentance is evidence of God's grace. We turn away from sin because God's wrath is coming upon ungodliness. Verse 7, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Trees that don't bear good fruit are fit to be chopped and burned, which is why we really want to be trees bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. I know what some of you just thought, and it is not that repentance saves us, nor that good works, not our good works, not that our good works turn away God's wrath. That's not why we labor in these ways. It is that those in whom God has worked by his Spirit bear this kind of fruit. Those whom God has called to faith in Christ learn increasingly 
to hate their sin, which means those who have not turned from their sin have not trusted in the Savior. And so then, the question is, do you love your sin? Do you love the unrighteous things you do in thought, word, and deed? If you strive after, if you strive after ungodly things, then you must know that God's wrath is coming and will rain down upon those who have committed to their godlessness. But you could repent. You can turn away from your love for sin. And crucially, we don't turn away from sin by simply turning to morality. We turn to Jesus Christ. The first motion that we can make, enabled by God's grace, in any of this, is turning to Jesus. You don't turn away from sin to find Jesus, but you flee to Jesus to be rid of your sin. Just like you don't clean yourself up before you take a shower, so too you don't try to get better to go to Christ. Just like you shower to get clean, so you go to Christ who will make you better. And that sanctification is built on the gospel premise that God restores us to right relationship with Him. He justifies us. Christ credits His perfect record to you by faith and forgives all your sin. And His merits, they cover even the imperfections of your works. But that is why we pursue those fruits in keeping with repentance as the tenor of the Christian life. Repentance is not the foundation. Christ and faith in Him is the foundation. Christ is the root and the tree. You are connected thereunto. And our efforts to turn away from sin and race after holiness spring after being joined to Christ. And so when we then pursue ongoing repentance because it is the flavor of life with Christ. It is the melody of the Christian walk. But this race from sin is simply also the race after our Savior who died to rescue us from sin in penalty and in power. And who waits to say, well done, good and faithful servant, to all who would turn to him in true faith. We give thanks for that. We seek after him. And let's pray. Father God, in the past weeks, we have looked at a great many difficult things about the doctrine of repentance. We have 
opened this topic up to see some of the complexities and hardships of searching ourselves. And so as we sum that up here, we do pray that you would simply remind us, as this text presents, that your church, your community, is to be characterized by repentance. So we ask that each one of us, as individuals giving rise to a characterization of our church, would have deep loathing for our own sin. God, we indeed worry about the things going on out there, but help us foremost to look within and say, I hate my own ungodliness and strive after new obedience. Not because it earns your love, not because it gains your favor, but because we have been bought with the blood of your Son who died to make us yours. And now that we belong to you, help us live in accord with our Master, the one who is now our Heavenly Father. Help us take on these family attributes, hating sin, loving holiness, so that we might enjoy deeper, fuller, more unbroken communion with you, and that you might be glorified in the world as we try more and more to shine the character of Christ. Help us to do that out of faith, seeking love, and we we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.